God, our Father, uh, we're, we're glad indeed to have the opportunity to join with one another in this way, uh, thanking you for the technology of Zoom that enables us from different parts of the country and different parts of the world indeed to join with one another. And we do so in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and are glad together to acknowledge that grace that you have shown to us in him and that mercy extended to us so wonderfully through your Holy Spirit on the basis of all that he, our Lord and Saviour, has done for us. Uh, we thank you, living God, for the heritage that we have. We thank you that we, as it were, stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us and uh, therefore are keen always to learn um, of uh, your dealings with your people and to apply ourselves to um, the truth of your word in such a manner that we may be able to, to comprehend that truth and see how it applies across the spectrum of our lives and of our living in the day and generation in which we live. We'd ask therefore for Duncan that you would be his enabling both this evening and through the course of these coming weeks as he leads us through this module on Reformation Theology. And as we pray for him and pray that anointing of your Holy Spirit, that he would uh, speak with a clarity, that your spirit would use all that he says to illumine our minds and indeed to inspire our hearts. Um, as we pray for him, we pray too for Jeremy McQuoid as he recovers on the back of uh, substantial major heart surgery. Uh, thank you for uh, the way in which uh, the surgery went well. May he know a peace, may he know good healing. Do watch over him and his family. And we pray, Lord God, for one another according to our different needs, that you would minister your grace to us all and meet with us again this evening. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Duncan, over to you. It's a pleasure to uh, sit under your ministry. Thanks so much, Jerry, and thank you all for coming back. The summer break feels like a like a long one, doesn't it? So thanks for all of you coming back, and it's good to see some familiar faces and familiar names as well. Uh, originally, when we had set out to do our uh, our rerun of NESGT Foundation course, the hope was to to do these sessions in person and uh, even to do this session in, in Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. And so I thought it would be good just to give you a little flavour of what that might have looked like. We're um, broadcasting live from the church here, um, but uh, hopefully uh, you will, will benefit greatly from, from what we're going to be studying tonight. And just to say up front, a few things you might find helpful to have, certainly uh, a Bible, you'll be relieved to hear that. Um, also, in the, the email that Rosie sent out, uh, Rosie and Morvan sent out earlier, um, was a, a handout for this session. And what you'll find is that there may be points where there's some significant quotations that I will give, and some of them will appear on the PowerPoint that I'll share in a moment. But um, all of those quotations are in that handout. So if you want to refer to those, you may find that helpful. Also, I want to say I'm keen for, for there to be a bit of... Um, interaction, not necessarily a live Q&A, though we might build up to that, who knows. But if you have any questions along the way, submit them in the chat and uh, we'll make sure to, to compile them or feel free to email them in. And uh, we'll make sure if the question is on topic that uh, we will answer it, not necessarily on the night, but on subsequent nights. So please do make use of that. As I mentioned, I do have a, a PowerPoint, which I'll share just now. and. 
Um, there's nothing, I say this every time I do these modules, there's nothing hugely novel about the PowerPoint. It really is in large part a duplication of what you'll find in the handout, but hopefully it will help you to, 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 to keep paying attention uh, through this night. So we will have a screen break at some point. Don't ask me when that will be, but I promise you will get one. So let's get down to our first session. Um, the late R.C. Sproul, he, he published a book which was entitled Everyone's a Theologian. And that book was an introduction to what we call systematic theology. The title of the book is quite revealing, I think. Everyone's a theologian. That's true. Whether they know it or not, everyone is a theologian. They have done some level of study of God and they have drawn their conclusions. In fact, everyone is a systematic theologian. And we're going to define what that is in a moment. Um, what I mean by that is they, they believe various things about God to be true. And in our own minds, at least, we think all of those things hold together. There is a, a system of belief in place. Christian or not, that's the case for everyone. Everyone's a theologian. They've done their thinking and they've drawn their conclusion about God. But just because everyone's a theologian does not minimize the importance of theology or specifically for us tonight, systematic theology. It actually stresses the great need to be sure that the source of that theology is reliable. And so this module that we start tonight, it's our effort to introduce systematic theology into the NESGT Foundation course. So what is systematic theology? Well, Charles Hodge, uh, he defines it like this. It is to systematize the facts of the Bible and ascertain the principles or general truth truths which the facts involve. In other words, it's to try and answer those sorts of questions that start like this. What does the Bible say about? And in answering the question, we try and draw from the entire Bible its summary message on that subject. And so in doing this, there's some assumptions that we have to make. Um, three, really. The first of those, if, if, it, if systematic theology is going to work at all, we need to assume, first of all, that God exists. Second of all, we need to assume that God has spoken, that he has revealed himself to us in his word. And third of all, we make the assumption that God's words are true and that they are consistent. This is the assumption that you have to make if we're going to make any progress in this discipline, because you can understand if we approach this and we think that the Bible is full of contradictions, that one writer contradicts another, that the message often jars with the, the messages jar with each other, then we will never be able to have any kind of systematic understanding of the Bible's message. If we think that some parts of the Bible are God's word, and other parts of the Bible are not God's word, then to try and systematize the Bible, to try and answer that question, what does the Bible say about, then, well, it's a bit like trying to, to systematize Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist with Delia Smith's How to Cook. You know, the two are unrelated. It's preposterous to try and blend them together and say that they have some kind of common train of thought through them. 
And I hope the more that we go through this module and tonight's session in particular, I hope you'll be more and more convinced of that, that this is a, a discipline that, that we can enter into, that the Bible is God's word, it is true, and it is consistent from start to finish. Therefore, it is very reasonable to say, what does the Bible say about sin, salvation, sacrifice? You, you, you name it, how you can trace those themes through scripture, because it all holds together in truth. Now, you will have noticed, I'm sure, that this module is not called systematic theology. It's called Reformation theology. And um, that is our way of, of really trying to narrow down the scope of systematic theology. Any book that you've seen that's entitled Systematic Theology tends to require two hands to lift, such as the scope of systematics. And so our focus is going to be is going to be narrowed down and particularly to be narrowed down on those doctrines that were re-grasped and defined at the time of and in the light of the Reformation, uh, which particularly took place in the 16th century. So we won't in this module be spending time on the Trinity. We won't really be spending time on the incarnation or the return of Christ, because these weren't really the disputed issues at the Reformation. Instead, we're going to be focusing on things like the doctrine of Scripture, the nature of sin, salvation, the church, the Holy Spirit, living the Christian life. And my prayer is that, that it will confirm you more than anything in your confidence in the gospel. Well, the Reformation, it surely is uh, what you see there on your screen. It surely is an enduring image of the Protestant Reformation. Even people who know next to nothing about the details of what was at stake and what took place in the Reformation have seen something of this image before. A man nailing a piece of paper to a door. It even made it into an episode of The Simpsons. Indeed, a fairly recent book by uh, Stephen Nichols is entitled The Reformation, How a Monk with a Mallet Changed the World. But what was on the piece of paper that Martin Luther nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October? 1517, and why did it cause such a stir? Perhaps you might think that, uh, well, because uh, we know that the, the reformers were uh, so strong on the subject of salvation by faith alone, that surely that is what Martin Luther nailed to the door and caused such a fuss about. Well, what we'll find is that even though Martin Luther had begun to see that salvation was by faith alone. He had begun to see it quite clearly by the time he was nailing this paper to the door. This is not what the core issue was here. We will come back to Luther's eye-opening experience of justification in future weeks, but for now, I'm gonna tell you another part of the story, a more fundamental part. Luther was an Augustinian monk who had settled in Wittenberg in Saxon Germany as a lecturer at the university there. But more than that, he was the city's preacher. He served as the city of Wittenberg's pastor. 
1517, Luther became aware of a grave danger in the midst. It was the danger of a traveling salesman. The Pope at the time was a man named Leo X, who found himself financially strapped. Largely through his lavish and wasteful spending, he was in financial trouble. He was particularly struggling as well because his predecessor had commenced a building project, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and the project was floundering. This weakness in Rome's armour became a window of opportunity for a German bishop called Albert. Albert had set his sights on becoming archbishop over all of Germany, but he would have to pay for the privilege. And so he struck a deal. He would pay Rome 10,000 ducats, and in return, he wanted two things. The seat of the archbishop and permission to sell something called indulgences throughout Germany. And he would split the profits of those sales 50-50 with Rome. So there was money going to build the basilica in Rome. And that was a key part of the marketing campaign for these indulgences. So the salesmen would go around and say, just imagine poor old Peter and Paul, their bones lie mouldering in the rain for want of a basilica. But what wasn't made so clear to the people was that half the money was so that Albert could pay off his bankers that he borrowed from. So what were these indulgences that were for sale? Anyone who purchased an indulgence would receive, so it was claimed, remission of sins. This was an opportunity to purchase time off purgatory, either for oneself or for a loved one who had already died and gone to purgatory. Now, purgatory is this Roman Catholic doctrine that after death, Christians still have a stage of purification to go through. And depending upon how much residual sin needs to be burned off, that could take a long time. I mean, it could take thousands of years. It really was the waiting room for heaven. And this is why there was and still is such an emphasis on praying for the dead in Roman Catholic theology, because those dead people still need our prayers to get out of purgatory. Well, the traveling salesman came near, a man by the name of Joseph Tetzel. He was selling these certificates, these indulgences, with the promise that copies of the certificates would be carried to the Pope himself, who would secure the necessary forgiveness. Now, Tetzel was a master salesman. Uh, you'll find part of his sales pitch on page two of the handout. It went something like this. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Remember that you are able to release them. For as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Maybe I missed my calling. It's very manipulative very effective, and not surprisingly, especially effective on the poorest people in society. And when Luther heard about this practice, he was enraged. Remember, Luther was not just a theologian, he was the people's pastor. 
and he saw poor, vulnerable people in his parish being fleeced of what little money they had with this superstitious promise of forgiveness. And so Luther, he called for a public debate on the issue. And to do this, he wrote 95 theses. These were the points to be discussed. He put them on a placard and he nailed them to the castle church door in Wittenberg on October the 31st, 1517. There were several main points in Luther's theses. There is an evident care and concern for sinners, if you were to read through them. There is the objection to the manner in which the indulgence was being sold. That's there as well. But the key issue at stake is the issue of authority. So I've, I've included some of those theses in the handout. For example, number six, the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring that it has been remitted by God and by assenting to God's remission, though to be sure he may grant remission in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right to grant remission in such cases were despised, the guilt would remain entirely unforgiven. Number 52, the assurance of salvation by letters of pardon is vain, even though the commissary, nay, even though the Pope himself were to stake his soul upon it. Number 82, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and of the dire need of the souls that are there? If he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church, the former reasons would be most just, the latter is most trivial. Here's Luther's big issue. Who has authority to forgive sins? Who has authority to forgive sins? It's interesting to read the, the 95 Theses. You find that, that Luther at this stage is actually a defender of the Pope because Luther assumes that these indulgent salesmen are, are guys who have gone rogue that if only the Pope knew what was being done in his name, then he would put a stop to it. Well, those hopes were shown to be naive because the Pope whom he had defended actually put him on trial as a heretic. Though it isn't his predominant theme, Luther refers to the scriptures a few times in his theses. How he speaks of them is, is a foretaste, really, of things to come. He considers the condition of those in purgatory. And uh, he hadn't yet re rejected that unbiblical idea. He will get there. You'll find these on, on page three of the handout. It seems unproved by reason or scripture that they are outside the state of merit, that is to say, of increasing love. Again, it seems unproved that they, or at least that all of them, are certain or assured of their own blessedness. Number 20, therefore, by full remission of all penalties, the Pope means not actually of all, but only of those imposed by himself. And here's where this change comes in. Number 21, therefore, those preachers of indulgences are in error, who say that by the Pope's indulgences, a man is freed from every penalty and saved. You see how he progresses here? He says it's unproved either by reason or scripture, all of these things, number 18, 19, 20. Therefore, because it's unproved by scripture, those preachers of indulgences are wrong. 
how very different from the worldview that lay behind the sale of those certificates, which said, because the Pope says it, or because the church says it, therefore it is right. Luther says, because the scriptures don't say that, these guys are wrong. He considers how the sale of indulgences, because they just seem so much more efficient in saving folks from their sins, were actually displacing other things. This is number 53 and 54 of his theses. They are enemies of Christ and of the Pope who bid the word of God be altogether silent in some churches in order that pardons may be preached in others. Injury is done the word of God when in the same sermon an equal or a longer time is spent on pardons than on this word. You see where, where Luther's thought is here? One of the great scandals is that anything that pushes the word of God aside is to the great detriment and harm of the church and everyone in it. And it's this that brings us to the reformers' understanding of authority. Before we move on, I should say um, Wittenberg was not a terribly significant place. The university in which Luther lectured was not a significant place. And in fact, nobody turned up to the debate that Luther called for. By rights, this should have been a small fuss in a small town in German Saxony. But the reason why it became such a big deal was because of the recent invention of the printing press. And one writer's analysis is that in a fortnight, they were in every part of Germany. Luther's thought, the fruit of his theological awakening, was being carried to the people. And what they read resonated deeply with them. So I want to introduce you to some slightly, only slightly um, technical terminology, uh, which is commonly used in relation to this subject. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the time of the Reformation is, is often associated with re-grasping the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. And this is the core doctrine. That's what we're planning to spend some significant time unpacking in future weeks. And so this is called the material principle of the Reformation. It is its central teaching. It is the, the core thought that was re-recovered, re-grasped. Justification is by grace alone through faith alone. But there is something that precedes that. So sure, that's the core doctrine that was re-grasped, but something is even more fundamental than that. Because it's all very well to say that that's our core belief, but on what basis do you hold to that belief? What authoritative source do you draw that conviction from? And this is what's called the formal principle, the foundation of everything. And for Reformation theology, that authority, that formal principle is scripture alone. You'll have heard the Latin phrase sola scriptura. And I'm keen to stress that this is, um, you know, this is, this is an important distinction. This module is not called reformed theology. It is called reformation theology, which is a broader thing. It, it is, it's, um, actually taking a step back and, and perusing the foundations of evangelical theology. And here is this formal principle, this foundation of everything is the supreme authority of scripture. And I think it's important that we're clear on what is meant by scripture alone. 
It is a declaration that scripture is the supreme authority. Now, now notice with me, that's not a declaration that scripture is the only authority. So, for example, you will already know there is an authority that is possessed by church elders, church members, church confessions even. But the point is that their authority is derived from the supreme authority, which is scripture. In the reformers' day, and I suppose it's still the case, the prevailing view was that of the Catholic Church, which, which did see authority in scripture. It would be a mistake to caricature the church of Luther's day as rejecting the authority of scripture altogether. That wasn't the case. The problem was that scripture was not regarded as the supreme authority. Actually, instead, scriptural authority was subordinate to the authority of the church because, the argument goes, it requires popes or churches or councils to define and interpret scripture for us. And so, for example, one of the first official responses to Luther's 95 Theses was written by a man called Silvestro Prierius, entitled On the Power of the Papacy. He wrote this, whoever does not hold fast to the teachings of the Roman Church and of the Pope as the infallible rule of faith, from which even Holy Scripture draws its strength and authority, is a heretic. Do you see that? Scripture is not the supreme authority. The officers of the church are the supreme authority, and they interpret Scripture for us. Luther has come to a completely different conclusion. Sola Scripture, or Scripture alone, is the supreme authority. And so in the church that Luther knew, doctrine was actually the product of two sources of authority scripture and also what was called the unwritten tradition which was the collected pronouncements of the church down through the generations luther called for a return to the priority of scripture indeed that also meant a return to scripture in their own languages again something that only became possible in luther's day because of the invention of the printing press god in his providence brought these things to pass at just the right time and put just the right people in just the right place. And as you can imagine, the, the reformers are very quotable on this principle. Luther, when being challenged by the church authorities uh, the next year, October 1518, he stated his position like this. These words are on page four of your handout. The truth of scripture comes first. After that is accepted, after that is accepted, one may determine whether the words of men can be accepted as true. Scripture first. Three years later, Luther's great showdown in the, pre in the presence of the emperor at what's been called the Diet of Worms. He's given a last chance to disown his writings and to seek forgiveness. Now, there's some dispute about exactly what he said, but it went along these lines. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. 
It seems he probably never said, here I stand, I can do no other. But in effect, that is what he said, wasn't it? His conscience is captive to the word of God. And his point is clear. Scripture is the supreme authority. And we need to take time to consider tonight why that's the case. Why did he come to that conclusion? Why do we hold to this, this, this understanding of the place of God's word? Well, it does revolve entirely around the nature of what Scripture is. I realize I'm in danger of, of, of going over ground that we covered in, in Module 2, our Bible handling module last year. But hopefully we'll, we'll push on a bit from where we were in that module. You see, the fundamental point is seen in the way Luther interchanges his terminology in that quotation from Burns. Um, he, he speaks about um, he needs to be convinced by Scripture. And he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. He sees these two terms describe the same thing. They are synonyms of each other. Scripture, the word of God, they're the same thing. Scripture is identical to the word of God. And it takes us to some foundational verses of scripture for understanding, at the very least, what scripture claims for itself. So you find this famously in um, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. Other translations, it's God-breathed, inspired by God, given by inspiration of God. This is what is meant when we say that the Bible is inspired by God. It's breathed out by him. But it's not what most people hear when they hear the word inspired. Because we tend to use that word in a, in a more abstract way. Uh, things I've never said. I was inspired to run a marathon. I was inspired to write a song. I was inspired by reading a book. In those typical usages, what are we saying? We're, we're using the word inspired as an alternative word for motivated. But when we say that the scriptures are inspired by God, we're saying something very different than God gave the men who wrote the Bible motivation. That's not what it means. That's actually to, to misdefine inspiration. Inspired does not mean motivated. In fact, you look again at 2 Timothy 3. 16 and the emphasis is on the scriptures being inspired not the individuals who wrote them but the scriptures themselves as being inspired and in fact it's the it's the old meaning of that word inspired which simply means to breathe to breathe out and so our modern translations breathed out by god is what is meant. That's what it means by that word. So, for example, uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, he deliberately avoids using the word inspired at all because he, he understands that today it's, it conveys an idea that is much weaker than was intended in the 17th century when the authorized version of the Bible was translated. You may have heard the term, uh, someone believes in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, which means that all the Scriptures were inspired 
were breathed out by God. That word plenary just means full or complete. So what does that mean for the process then of how we got the scriptures? I mean, there's, there's numerous theories that might be available to us. Perhaps the one that we're most tempted to gravitate towards is that of dictation. God simply told the writers of scripture which words to write down. And this is, for example, how Muslims believe the Quran was received, a dictation from God. And when we look at the, the prophets in our Old Testament, they certainly receive at times, don't they, a message from God. They go and deliver it. But it would be a mistake to think of the biblical writers as putting together their biblical writings in the same way. And the best reason for rejecting that view is because actually of how the biblical writers themselves describe their process. Uh, in the church I belong to, we've recently been thinking about uh, uh, the gospel writer Luke in writing the book of Acts. And he also wrote, of course, the gospel of Luke. And listen to how he introduces that gospel and see if it sounds like divine dictation. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke doesn't say, well, you know, I wrote this gospel and uh, God told me the words to write and I just wrote them down. No, he says, I investigated. I did my research. I pieced together the account. I structured it in an ordered way. I mean, I would say also, read through the Bible. I don't think it takes much reading to, to very quickly realize that when you compare the different books of the Bible with each other, you find that even though there is a unity of message that runs through them all, there is also an evident diversity of style. Even between letters by different authors, gospels by different authors, even though Matthew, Mark and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, which means you know, they, have, they take the same view, they differ significantly in style from each other. And John's gospel is a style all of its own. This is not the mark of a series of books that have simply been dictated by the same author word for word. So if inspired does not mean dictation, then what? Well, there are some ideas that take us further back from the precision of the words, and they, they might include the idea that the biblical authors possessed what is sometimes called uh, religious intuition. In other words, the authors had an elevated sense of religion. Maybe they were geniuses. But this places the origin of the content of scripture entirely in the human mind. It's the human author's mind that generates the starting point for the scriptures. There's other options a stage further than that might be the idea that the Holy Spirit gave the biblical writers an impression increased their grasp of spiritual truths. But again, this is merely enlightened human writing. It doesn't get us to what scripture claims for itself, that it is God's words. 
maybe we're approaching this all wrong and we should adopt something like what um, what's sometimes called the encounter theory. It claims that there's nothing much special about the Bible when you compare it to other religious texts, but it's this ordinary writing that can become the word of God when the reader responds with faith. The problem is, of course, that this reduces the text's God-breathed status to some subjective thing. It may be the word of God when I read it or when you read it, but not when you read it or when you read it. Just depends how you read it. Maybe it's the word of God, maybe it's not. Whereas that claim in 2 Timothy 3 is a much more definitive statement, isn't it? There is a fact that is declared here that all scripture is God-breathed. Regardless of how it's received, it is still God-breathed. It comes from the mouth of God. And there's lots of other options. Um, Think of the suggestions that maybe the Holy Spirit gave these guys who wrote the scriptures insight into the big concepts that they wrote about. But from there, the wording was all in their hands. And so the theory there would say you can trust the concepts, but don't get too hung up on the words. But this doesn't even do justice to calling the scriptures the word of God. No, our understanding of the inspiration of scripture and how we got the scriptures needs to be much more of a, of a cooperative thing in our minds. We must acknowledge as best we can that the Bible is both a human and a divine book, that the very words of scripture are both human and divine at one and the same time. I want to introduce you to an American theologian from the late 19th, early 20th centuries, a man known as B.B. Warfield. And he wrote extensively on the nature of Holy Scripture. If you're looking for, a, for something to follow up on that, his book, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, is a good but a lengthy read, well worth the time. In that book, he used the phrase, concursive operation. Now, don't be frightened by that, please. Concursive operation of the Spirit. To try and explain what we mean by inspiration. Let me quote from B.B. Warfield. This is a longer quote. You'll find it on page five of the handout. Um, Just stay with me. It does make sense. He says this, by concursive operation may be meant that form of revelation illustrated in an inspired psalm or epistle or history in which no human activity, not even the control of the will, is superseded, but the Holy Spirit works in, with, and through them all in such a manner as to communicate to the product qualities distinctly superhuman. The spirit is not to be conceived as standing outside of the human powers, but as working confluently in, with, and by them, elevating them, directing them, controlling them, energizing them, so that as his instruments, they rise above themselves. And under his inspiration, do his work and reach his aim. The product, therefore, which is attained by their means, is his product through them. Although the circumstances, uh, although the circumstance that what is done is done by and through the action of human powers keeps the product in form and quality in a true sense human, yet the confluent operation of the Holy Spirit throughout the whole process 
raises the result above what could by any possibility be achieved by mere human powers and constitutes it expressly a supernatural product. The human traits are traceable throughout its whole extent, but at bottom, it is a divine gift. Feel free to go over those paragraphs again in your own time. But that's a, a helpful way of getting into this mystery of how this book is both human and divine, and at bottom is this divine gift. And so we don't need to hesitate for a moment in saying that John's gospel is John's words. He chose to base it around seven signs. And at the same time, we don't hesitate to say that John's gospel is God's word breathed out by God to us. In the late 1970s, a group of around 200 evangelical leaders came together to affirm their commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture. What they produced was known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Anyway, they summarize inspiration like this. Again, this is on page five of your handout. Article six, we affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. Article 7, we affirm that inspiration was the work in which God, by his Spirit, through human writers, gave us his word. The origin of Scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. Article 8, we affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilised the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. And this is exactly what scripture attests of itself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, um, it might be worth turning there, folks, actually, 2 Peter chapter 1. because I want to show you uh, not just this point, but... Uh, to move on from this, this point we're making to some of the implications that necessarily flow out of it. So 2 Peter chapter 1, let me just read from verse 16. We'll get the, the argument here. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Let me just, let me just, just pause there. I mean, I'm sure you re recognise Peter is referring to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he reminds us, Peter, James and John had this most remarkable privilege of, of seeing the transfiguration. They saw the, the transformation of Christ. They saw Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus in glory, and they heard God the Father speak from heaven. Okay, so then what does he say? Verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
You see that? He says, we were on the, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard the voice of God the Father come from heaven and speak about his son. But in comparison to all that we saw and heard that day, there is something even more reliable than that, something even more convincing than that. He says, more sure. And that is the prophetic word. He's referring to the scriptures. The scriptures are more sure than even what Peter saw and heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see what he says about how the prophets spoke God's words. That's verse 21. And it's as if Peter says it's because of the nature of God's word delivered to us that we can have such confidence in it. These men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, this concursive operation of the Spirit. And it's from this understanding then that there are some inevitable implications that flow from. If this is the nature of Scripture, then what inevitably comes from that? Well, let me use some Scripture to make this point. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God's words are pure words. Or even from Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Proverbs 30. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. If this is our position, that all scripture is breathed out by God, then we cannot hold that position and not then come to the conclusion that all scripture is true, truthful, reliable. This is how those authors of the Chicago Statement led on from their commitment to inspiration. Um, Article 9, we affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. And also Article 11, we affirm that scripture having been given by divine inspiration is infallible so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. I mean, this is not a big jump, folks, is it? The Bible's the word of God, then it carries the authority of God. You can't have that same confidence when it comes to church councils, or in the pronouncements of popes, or dare I say, even the pronouncements of your pastor. It's the word of God that carries the supreme authority because of the nature of what it is. It is the gold standard against which every truth claim that exists must be tested. There can be no higher authority than the word of scripture because it is the very word of God. And so you can see how this turned on its head the prevailing view in the church in Luther's day. Because for the Catholic church, it was in fact the church itself that stood in authority over the scriptures. Luther puts it like this. It is the promises of God that make the church. 
and not the church that makes the promises of God. And what a crucial difference that is. Or another phrase that's used is that the church is a creature of the word. Therefore, it can never stand in authority over the world. Um, so let's, let's get back to our subject in hand then. So scripture is the word of God. Scripture is true. Well, there's another aspect of the, uh, the nature of scripture that we need to get some clarity on here. And, and that is that, that scripture is clear. This was a crucial uh, doctrine for the reformers. That sounds like a simple thing to say, doesn't it? But uh, the more we dig into it, you'll see why it becomes important. It's, it's the word perspicuity is the preferred word. Clarity or perspicuity. In other words, it's understandable. For the Roman Catholic Church, the scriptures were, were complicated and hard to understand. But God, in his grace, has given us an interpreter, the church. Thus, one of the arguments that was used to try and shut Martin Luther down was that he was bringing strange ideas out of the scriptures which were contradicting the Pope, when in fact it is only the Pope who has been given the place of interpreting scripture on behalf of the people. This argument, not surprisingly, got up Luther's nose. He described it as an outrageous fancied fable. Another of the reformers was a man named Ulrich Zwingli. He pioneered the Reformation in Switzerland pretty much at the same time as Luther was in Germany. And Zwingli always claimed that he came to his conclusions independent of Luther. And he preached a famous sermon in 1522, which really strikes at the heart of this subject. And its title is all we're going to look at. Its title was On the Clarity and the Certainty of the Word of God. You can still go and read it. It's, a, it's not a short read, but he makes a solid case with a view to giving guidance to his hearers on how to read the Bible and to get to its core message. And, you know, he's speaking to the people. This is a sermon delivered not to, not to cardinals or bishops. This is to the people. And he wants to convince them of the clarity and the certainty of the word of God so that they, driven by this commitment to clarity, with themselves understand, go and study the scriptures and find what it says for themselves to convince them they don't need a higher authority on earth for them to understand the scriptures. They have clarity and certainty. Now we know that there are parts of scripture that are difficult. And if we were just to leave this subject here, many of us would think, well, that's a bit simplistic because there are difficult parts of the scriptures. And this is scripture's own testimony as well. And uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. As I said, the, the Roman Catholic solution to overcoming the difficulties of scripture was to ask the church to pronounce on the subject. The Reformation commitment to the perspicuity, the transparency and understandability of scripture made for another solution. The more difficult passages of scripture are illuminated 
by the less difficult passages of Scripture. The less clear is clarified by the more clear. This is the fruit of the conviction that all Scripture is the Word of God. And therefore, all Scripture, that it, it, it is internally consistent. There's no part that is an outlier. It all declares the same message. That being the case, the greater our understanding of all of Scripture, the more able we will be to grasp the individual parts of it, even the more difficult parts. And so even if we think about those notorious passages of Scripture that have flummoxed commentators and theologians alike through the centuries, even though we might not be able to definitively get down to exactly what is meant when, for example, Paul speaks about those who have been baptized for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. Though we might not get absolutely definitively down to what he's referring to, our grasp of the rest of Scripture will help us to narrow it down. It will bring light on the subject. So you take that example itself, the baptism for the dead. We can say from the testimony of the rest of Scripture that there were not people in the church being baptized on behalf of people who were already dead. Unless Paul was describing perhaps a pagan practice. You see, there are things that we can, we can narrow it down. And we're not left floundering just at that verse and what it says. The testimony of the rest of Scripture and how God's people understood death and baptism, you bring it to bear. It doesn't, it's not an easy passage to, to pronounce on, but we are able to get so much closer because we have an understanding of the rest of Scripture. The principle is quite simple, really. Let Scripture interpret scripture. That is the road to clarity and certainty. I would also say at this stage, be very wary of preachers who make you, not intentionally, but who unintentionally make you doubt the clarity of scripture. Now, again, that's not to say that all of scripture is equally clear. Some of it is difficult, and we praise God for men and women who have worked to open up otherwise obscure passages for us. But if you have a preacher who is always telling you that you cannot understand a portion of scripture without his intellect working on your behalf, then there is something very wrong. The best preachers and teachers are the ones who make you say, how did I not see that there? It's clearly in the passage. Brad preachers are those who consistently make you say, well, I would never see that in the passage. The best preachers convince you that the word of God is within your grasp, not beyond your reach. I think that's how Brian Chappell puts it in his excellent book, Christ-Centered Preaching. With open Bibles, we want to be led through God's word and shown its clarity, not have it made more obscure to us. So what's the knock-on effect of this understanding of Scripture? Well, it is surely to be convinced that Scripture is needed by everyone. We need to put the clear word of God into the hands of everyone because they are able to read it and they are able to understand it because scripture is clear. If we don't have to depend on, a, on some mediated step before the Bible makes any sense, then the best thing we can do for someone is to put it into their hands. 
And this is why, along with the Reformation, came a real drive for Bible translation. After Luther's stand at Worms, which we mentioned earlier, his life was in real danger. Not only was he an enemy of the Pope, he became an enemy of the state. And so his friends had him kidnapped and they hid him away in the Wartburg Castle. And there he was stuck for 10 months. And famously, he grew a beard and he changed his name to Knight George. But even though he was in hiding, his mission of reform was not stalled at all. In fact, that period of hiding may have been the best thing for Luther and for the, the movement of reform because he set about translating the New Testament into German. He translated the whole New Testament into German within 11 weeks. And in the process composed perhaps the most influential piece of writing in German history. Not just doctrinally influential, but as we find in our own English Bibles, linguistically influential as well. And this is a pattern that's repeated by the reformers. Most famously for us was the work of the Englishman William Tyndale, born in Gloucestershire, somewhere on the Welsh border, 1494. We don't know much about his youth, but we know that he went to Oxford University, completed his degree in philosophy, and just before he'd completed his master's, he entered into the priesthood. Be under no uh, illusion here, Tyndale was a Roman Catholic. His intention was to go on and study a theology doctorate. But to his great disappointment, he was told that his studies would not involve studying the Bible. So William Tyndale, he took things into his own hands. He led some of his friends and colleagues in studying the word of God in his spare time. That excited him. It opened his eyes to the truth of what salvation really was. At that time, he began to be exposed to what Martin Luther was teaching in Germany. And it's in that time he was converted. So he traveled to London in the hope of finding support to translate the Bible into English. And Bishop Tunstall refused and told Tyndale that it would be better to live without the law of God than to live without the laws of the Pope. And Tyndale famously said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, I will cause the boy that drives the plough in England to know more of the scriptures than even the Pope. You see, translating the Bible into the common tongue at the time was outlawed. The church was utterly opposed to it. Tyndale realised that if he was to pursue his ambition, then his welcome in England would not last very long. And so he left London, headed to the lands of the reformers. He went to Germany. He met Martin Luther. Two years later, the New Testament in English was completed and was published, praise God, for the printing press. And little by little, it was smuggled back into England and Scotland. And the people had an insatiable hunger for the word of God. They just could not get enough of it. Tyndale's desire was to complete the word of God. So he set to work on the Old Testament. And in between this, he wrote some literature on the Protestant faith, on the errors of Rome. And it was those things in particular that got him into some hot water. Hot water. He criticised 
Henry VIII for his divorce. And when Henry read this pamphlet criticising him, he was furious and demanded that Tyndale be found and executed. And so Tyndale's life was one permanently on the move around Europe. For even though he wasn't in England, he was a wanted man who could be arrested at any time. But here was a man who never gave up the work. Why was the threat against Tyndale and others like him just so vicious, so vehement? I mean, what was so dangerous about translating the Bible out of Latin and into the language of the, of the common man? Well, the threat was at least twofold. First of all, there was the obvious issue that this would erode the church's authority. There's the obvious point that if, if the layman was being given some sort of power to check the correctness of their priest or their church's practice, then that becomes a problem for the authority of the church. But more than that, especially in the case of Tyndale and his translation, there were some, some linguistic choices that Tyndale made that threatened to, to undermine the authority structures in the church. So, for example, the Greek word presbyteros traditionally was, was translated priest, but in Tyndale's hands, it was simply translated senior, or we would translate it elder. There's the word ecclesia, which translated church, but in Tyndale's hands, he gave it a more literal translation of congregation. You see, the emphasis in Tyndale's translation was, was overwhelmingly on the local church, taking away the language that people associated with the institutional church. He emphasized the, the New Testament's language of the local church. And so this, this drive to translating the scriptures into the language that, that, that normal men and women could understand was, was the conviction of the great confessions that came out of the Reformation as well. I'll give you the example of the, the Baptist Confession of 1689. The Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and were kept pure through subsequent ages by his singular care and providence. They are therefore authentic so that in all controversies of religion the church must appeal to them as final. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right to and an interest in the scriptures and who are commanded to read and search men in the fear of God, the scriptures are therefore to be translated into the ordinary language of every nation into which they come, so that with the word of God living richly in all, people may worship God in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. William Tyndale was not the first to translate the scriptures into English. A similar conviction was held by a man named John Wycliffe in the 14th century. He held that same conviction about the authority of scripture and he was declared a heretic by the church some 30 years after he had died. But it was his conviction of Bible translation that means that you've probably heard of John Wycliffe's name. Today, it is preserved in a missionary organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators, who are actively working to translate the scriptures into languages which have no Bible. And it's interesting to consider the impact of this work. So I've, I've pointed out that this, 
um, this translation work fueled the Reformation in the 16th century. But actually, some of the movements in more, more modern evangelicalism have, have been born out of this drive to translate the scriptures into common languages. And some have, have done a study of this, and particularly its impact on, in the 20th century. So, for example, one of the evident trends of the last century was the shift of Christianity's center of gravity from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. So uh, the statistics tell us that between 1900 and the year 2000, the population of the world grew by about three and a half, multiplied by three and a half times. The number of Christians in Europe multiplied by about one and a half. Number of Christians in North America kept pace, about three and a half. The number of Christians in Asia multiplied 15 fold. And the number of Christians in Africa multiplied 34 fold. I mean, just get your head around that. Nine million Christians in Africa in 1900 grew to 310 million Christians in Africa in the year 2000. And the church historian Mark Knoll in his book, Turning Points, he tries to pinpoint some of the key turning points that produced this trend. Here's what he writes. If it were necessary to find a single turning point symbolizing this movement of Christianity from north to the south, a good candidate might be the founding of Wycliffe Bible Translators in 1934. This organization has been the most visible promoter of Bible translation in the 20th century. The translation of the scriptures in turn may be the most enduringly significant feature of the global expansion of Christianity that has been taking place since the start of the 19th century. Historians of Christianity take for granted that Jerome's translation of the Greek and Hebrew originals into Latin exerted an immense impact on Western society in the Middle Ages, as did Luther's translation on German language and literature the King James Version and other translations on Britain and its colonies, and still more European versions in their regions. Similarly, much can be expected in cultures where the Bible has been rendered into the common language for the first time in the 20th century. The New Testament has been translated into something like 1,500 languages, but that apparently leaves somewhere in the region of 250 million people with no access to any scripture in a language that they understand well. That is as tragic as it gets, isn't it? The reformers brought with them a commitment to Bible translation because they were convinced of the perspicuity, the clarity of scripture, and that the common man or woman or boy who drives the plow did not need some earthly mediator for them to understand its core message. And uh, if you're looking for some missionary organization to support, why not turn to Wycliffe Bible translators who are doing such fruitful work? I want to close with a warning, however. Uh, reading scripture is a community project. In some ways, it's not hard to see why the Reformation was a popular grassroots movement, because it was claiming that authority was wrongly being wielded over the common man. And it asserted the spiritual rights of normal people. And this is clearly seen in this appreciation of Scripture's authority, as well as Scripture's clarity, which made everyone who could read qualified, to some extent, to be their own theologian. 
There was a danger in this doctrine, however. And it really did come to the fore in a group which are known as the radical reformers. The most well-known group of radicals were the Anabaptists, who were insistent, so insistent on this principle that it actually led them to, in the main, discard all input from church history. They rejected anything that looked like an appeal to tradition. And so among the radical reformers, and anything that they felt couldn't explicitly be found in scripture, they rejected. So this led to rejections of infant baptism, the Trinity, the traditional language of the nature of Christ. And so there was confusion about the divinity of Christ, about the humanity of Christ. Whereas the, what are known as the magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, they saw themselves as, as returning to the Christian faith as had been as espoused by the, by the faithful church fathers from the early centuries of the church, guys like Augustine, who we're going to meet in future weeks. Instead of that, the radicals, they make a break from the history of the church altogether. So one German radical who was a contemporary of Luther was a man named Sebastian Frank. And he wrote this, Foolish Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, Gregory, of whom not even one knew the Lord, so help me God, nor was sent by God to teach. Rather, they were all apostles of Antichrist. I mean, this, this might not strike you as severe, but this is ultra severe. These are, these are the fathers of the church, early believers. And with one sweep, Sebastian Frank says they were all heretics. You know, they didn't have everything right. There's nothing to learn from them. They weren't sent of God. They're apostles of Antichrist. These guys weren't called radical for nothing. But the result very often among them was anarchy. And this is why, as far as I can tell, from the radical reformers, there was never really a, a, a cogent, a consistent body of work produced. Because they each depended on a theological committee of one. And they could never agree. So you'll find systematic theologies are hard to come by from these radicals because they couldn't come together and agree because, well, each one had the authority to read scripture as he saw fit. And of course, to an extent, that's right. But this sort of thing goes on today. I mean, it'd be possible to highlight some of the crazy versions of it, but I suppose a common way to see it today is among those who are, who are disgruntled with church. Nothing is ever quite up to their standard. And so they decide that really what's needed for the, for, for the good of everyone is for me to found my own church. Now, what someone is saying when they do that sort of thing is we need a break from the history of the church and we need a fresh start. And not surprisingly, there's usually one or two people who are the final authority in that church. It's how all of the cults started. They were disgruntled with church they set up one that was in their own image and anyone who dared to question it was shot down we need to be very wary of those christian leaders whose big selling point is that they are distinct from the history of orthodox christianity the reformers like luther and calvin were horrified by the attitude of many of these radicals and were clear that discarding tradition was not the answer here 
Instead, we need to make sure that tradition is in its right place. I mean, just think how arrogant it would be to think that we could learn nothing from nearly 2,000 years of church history, 2,000 years of Christian thinkers who have sweated over the scriptures to understand what they teach. This is why the reformers said that scripture was to be the test of all things. And if something was found to be in accord with the truth of God, then embrace it. Learn from it. One of the 39 articles of the Church of England, article number eight, um, is specifically about the ancient creeds. Um, so you see there, it mentions three creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed. And what does it say about them? They ought thoroughly to be received and believed. Why? For they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. Don't believe them because they've got a good history. Don't believe them because they're traditional. Don't believe them because your father accepted them. Believe them because they can be proved by Holy Scripture. You see, Christians are not to be lone rangers. When we dispense with the history of the church and we say we don't need any of that, we isolate ourselves from these uh, faithful believers, many of them, who we can put our heads together with and learn from and grow with. When we make ourselves the sole, um, the sole arbiter of, of how to read the Bible, we, we miss out on the sharpening that comes and the encouragement that comes from reading scripture with our brothers and sisters. Christians are not lone rangers, neither historically nor in the present. The Reformation emphasized that scripture is to be read in community not in isolation. And that is what acts as checks and balances in ensuring that we don't deviate from the truth. Because given the opportunity, friends, our sinful nature will work hard to help us rationalize our sin, to explain away the claims of Scripture that instinctively we don't like. And this is why and we're, we're going to uh, walk with, with John Calvin in a, in, uh, in a week or two's time. Um, this is why he wrote his systematic theology, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. It wasn't primarily written for the university classroom. It was written for the church member so that they could read the scriptures in community with his work. This mindset, it also does justice to how the, the New Testament pictures the Christian life, doesn't it? One in community where we meet together to spur one another on in our faith, to speak the word of God to one another, where we learn from those faithful saints who've gone before us. This is how we get the most out of scripture, realizing it has this supreme authority, but that it is not, that is not to the exclusion of this subordinate authority that we find elsewhere. Promise me, promise me, friends, you won't be a lone ranger. And don't let others be lone rangers either. We need one another. That's what protects us from imbalance in our reading and understanding of Scripture. Well, as we draw things to a close tonight, I want you to be overwhelmingly confident that when you pick up your Bible, that what you hold in your hands is true, that it is reliable, 
that it is the very word of God, that it is clear, that it is understandable, and praise God that it is powerful to change even you. I want you to be convinced that what you have in the scriptures is enough. The main tendencies away from the reformers' general position on scripture that I see today is this tendency to downplay its reliability and to reject outright its sufficiency. In terms of reliability, I believe we're faced with a pretty binary choice. It either is or it isn't reliable. The moment that we start to play the game of saying that, well, you can trust this bit, but not that bit, then actually right there and then you have created a higher authority than scripture. You, you've made yourself the arbiter of what is and what isn't scripture. If we doubt its reliability to speak truthfully in some areas, then eventually everything is up for grabs. Because if you can't trust it in this, well, who's to say we can trust it in that? Lots of nuances to that discussion, I know, but in simple terms, that's where it comes to. Is it reliable or is it not? But in terms of that other area, I point out this sufficiency of scripture. There is a strong tendency among Christians to, to feel the need to have more than the scriptures in order to live their lives faithfully or in order to make um, decisions or to understand God's will. We need more than scripture. And this is a mistake. The phrase I used in, in year one was this, if you want to make godly decisions that keep you in the will of God, then the surest way to do that is to be the best student of scripture you can be. That is what is more important, more reliable and trustworthy than looking for confirming signs, laying out fleeces, not looking for random verses to jump out at you. Instead, it is as we read and study scripture for what it is that we inevitably learn. We learn what God is like. We learn what we're like. We learn about salvation. We learn about walking with Jesus. We learn about righteousness. We learn about sin. And this is what the Holy Spirit uses, the Holy Spirit-inspired word, to fashion and mold us into the likeness of Christ. It molds our thinking. It molds our view of the world. It molds our decision-making. Sometimes, of course, God does the spectacular and unusual, but be under no doubt, even though he does the spectacular and unusual, he has given us a sufficient word. And this is enshrined in most of our statements of faith. You go to evangelical churches, the one I'm part of now, we believe in the divine inspiration, authority, sufficiency, and reliability of the Bible. Now, the moment we say to God, well, I've read the Bible, you're going to need to give me more than that, God. You need to give me more than you've already given. Then you cut the legs out of this doctrine of sufficiency. There's a great hymn. And with these words, I'll close. It asks this question in the opening verse. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word? What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Have confidence tonight in the sure word of God. Let me pray for you. Father, we want to thank you for uh, this session. It's so good to see people back together again to, to come and to just meditate on these, these lofty truths, Father. We just want to thank you for 
the sure place that you've set us in as we trust in Jesus Christ, that to belong to him is the most secure place in the world. And you have delivered to us your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that it is sufficient for us to live godly lives. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to really treat the word of God as it is. Lord, save us from our sometimes our, our sense of tediousness in reading scripture. Lord, dare we even say our, our sense of boredom at times reading the word. Oh, Father, transform our perspective, Lord, that we would appreciate that the words on the page are you speaking to us. They have come direct from you. We thank you for how you, how you worked in with and through those, those writers of scripture and how you have preserved your word for us. Oh, Father, give us a sense of excitement, expectation, and anticipation as we open your word day by day this week. Father, we pray that your spirit would be transforming us more into the likeness of Jesus. And as we are renewed in our confidence in scripture, we would be confident to share it with others. As we ask you to bless us now, and I thank you for each one who's been part of our time tonight. Lord, may these things not part from us quickly. Lord, help us to chew on these more and more and that they might draw us nearer to yourself. As we pray these things now, in Jesus' name, amen.